You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with our text this morning, I would invite you to open the Word of God to Jeremiah chapter 31. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they will be my people. This is what the Lord says. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the desert. I will come to give rest to Israel. The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. I will build you up again, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go out to dance with the joyful. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. There will be a day when the watchmen cry out on the hills of Ephraim, Come, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from all the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble. Because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden. And they will sorrow no more. Then maidens will dance and be glad. Young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance. And my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. If you would turn to the New Testament, to the book of John, chapter 16, verses 17 through 33. Some of his disciples said to one another, those are the disciples of Jesus, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father? They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take you take away your joy. In that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my, my name. 
Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do, and that you do not even need to ask anyone, uh, to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. You believe at last, Jesus answered, but a time is coming, it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Our text this morning comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from twenty to thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is a quote that I read this week. It says, To be happy, one must have a good stomach and a bad heart. It's a line from a man by the name of Bernard de Fontenelle, a French hedonist. And sometimes, perhaps, we think he's right. And not that we would want to partake in that, but we think that that's where happiness is. You can get the sense sometimes, talking to Christians, that real joy and happiness, festivity, that's not really the place of of Christians. Sometimes we think that really living life to the fullest, enjoying life, embracing life, these are not the pursuits of a person of faith. No, the best kind of Christians, so it goes, are the ones who are austere, solemn, serious, who are apart from those 
sorts of life-embracing, joyous events. You can think of the famous quote by H.L. Mencken about Puritans. Puritans who, in many ways, believe a lot of the same things that we do. And he said that Puritanism is the overwhelming fear that somewhere, somehow, someone might be having fun. But the truth is that Christians have the most joy. Believers in Jesus Christ ought to be the ones who celebrate the most, who are the fullest with joy and happiness. Why? Because we can see the glory of Jesus Christ. Because we have the reason for joy, because we know the reason for joy. Because as John chapter 10 verse 10 says, we have life. He came to bring us life so that we might have it to the full. Jesus Christ affirms life. He fills life. Jesus Christ makes life better. Jesus Christ gives us more joy, more specifically, the glory. So we see in our text this morning, the glory of Jesus Christ makes things better. And we'll work that out through the course of the sermon. The glory of Jesus Christ makes things better. The glory of Jesus Christ brings a better sign, a better wine, and a better time. The glory of Jesus Christ makes things better. First of all, we see that He brings a better sign. We come to our text this morning. We see that the Lord Jesus shows up at a wedding banquet. It says on the third day. What does that third day refer to? Well, probably the third day after Nathaniel had made that statement, that confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The third day after Jesus Christ had broken into his heart and had shown him who he was, Jesus went to a wedding. His mother Mary was also invited to that wedding as well as his disciples. And perhaps you're wondering, well, where's Joseph at this time? How come he's not showing up here? Well, after the birth of Jesus Christ, we we don't hear any more of Joseph. We never hear of Joseph during the public ministry of our Lord And that leads many to believe that he probably passed away before Jesus was 30 years old, before he began his public ministry. And so Mary was alone now with her children. And actually, you can kind of see that happen here in this event with the wine, because any busy mother, many busy mothers, I should say, rely on their eldest child. For, to do a little more, to take more responsibility. Even more that would be the case if your husband passed away. Jesus, of course, was her eldest child. And you see here in this event at the wedding that Mary is leaning on her son, Jesus, to take responsibility, to do something. She's learned that he is very capable of handling responsibility. That he's a very resourceful child. And so she leans on him. 
Now, it seems that this wedding banquet that we read about in John 2 was quite a large one. And wedding banquets in general were big affairs in those days. It was a big event. The partying would go on for seven days. Families would invite as many people as possible, even famous teachers in the area. And perhaps that's why Jesus is invited with his disciples. And it was the family's responsibility to keep the guests wined and dined throughout the course of these seven days. To put on a good banquet was very important for the, the status, uh, the, the, the impression of your family. And so to run out of food or to run out of wine was a major social faux pas, a no-no, a misstep. You didn't want to do that. There are accounts of, of families being jeered for years after such a thing happened. So that's why it seems that Mary asks Jesus to help the family, to save them from this kind of disgrace. Now when you read this, you perhaps think that Mary is asking Jesus to do a miracle, but there's really no reason to believe that. This, as we mentioned, is the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, And there's no account of his having done any miracles before then. It's very likely he didn't, especially since at the beginning of his ministry, he received the Holy Spirit in a special way, and then after that began doing many miraculous signs and wonders. And so likely Mary is not asking him to do a miracle, but she's just, as I mentioned before, leaning on her resourceful and and responsible eldest son, He's found a way to help in many other situations. Perhaps he can find a way to help now as well. And so this miracle is the first one of the Lord Jesus Christ while he was on earth. You've got to remember that though few recognize it, Jesus Christ is in fact, as Nathaniel stated, the Messiah of Israel and the King bringing in a new kingdom. The, the King of the world is, is at this wedding banquet. And just like any new ruler of a country brings with him a new tone, a new set of rules, a new direction, so the case with this new Messiah. What's his rule going to be like? When the President of the United States is first inaugurated, people will talk about the first 100 days. What he does in the first 100 days of his presidency will sort of set the roadmap, the direction for the the rest of the way it's going to happen. So here with Jesus. The first days of his ministry, the first events of his ministry are going to mark out what kind of ministry this is going to be. What's going to characterize the administration of this New kingdom. This new covenant. And so our attention has to be on what is most significant about this miracle. Well, there are several significant things about this miracle. Let's try to tease out which is the most significant. The Lord Jesus shows here by showing up at this wedding that he endorses marriage. And that is certainly true. He goes to the wedding feast, and along with the other guests, he rejoices in God's gift of marriage. But that's not what's most significant about this miracle. The Lord Jesus also shows that he's not a a teetotaler. He's not someone who, 
who says that you need to abstain from alcohol. And some explainers really do stumble over this. It seems they, they, they don't believe you could, should consume alcohol and they can't really see why the Lord Jesus would either. Uh, to the point that some even argue that he didn't change the water into wine, but he changed it into grape juice. But while Jesus shows that there is a proper place to enjoy wine and a proper use for it, that's not what this miracle is all about. He shows that he cares for his friends and acquaintances. He comes to the rescue of of this bridegroom, saves him from embarrassment. But that's not what this miracle is all about. In this miracle, the Lord Jesus shows that he endorses festivity and rejoicing and even adds to it. And now we're starting to get warmer. We're coming closer to what this miracle is all about. Jesus comes and shares in the joy of the wedding banquet. And then when when it looks like things are going to take a turn for the worst, he ensures that that doesn't happen and he provides better wine. Why wine? Well, in the Old Testament especially, we came up in Jeremiah 31, comes up in many other places. Joy is symbolic of, of, wine is symbolic of joy. Wine points to joy. You could say here, Jesus provides more joy for the banquet. At this banquet, wine means joy. No wine would mean no joy. Better wine means more. Joy. And while it's true that sometimes we promote the idea that the best Christians are the most stern and most serious and most austere, and on the other side, while we don't party like the world parties, it doesn't mean that we can't party, that we can't have joy, that we can't enjoy getting together and celebrating. The Lord Jesus affirms life, and at this party, he adds to the joy with the better wine. And yet, as much as, as he is doing that here in this, in this miracle at the wedding feast, it's not really what the miracle is all about. What this miracle is all about is his glory. It's about the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what John even writes in the last verse He says, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. The message isn't simply that we're allowed to enjoy life and have a good time. The message is that the glory of Jesus Christ, the beauty of his person, the the majesty of him, the beauty of what he's done, of what he's all about, of his new administration, As king, what he does in this world, what he does for the Father, the glory of Jesus infuses life with true joy. That's the message. The glory of Jesus is what gives us reason for celebration and what really makes things better. Jesus brings his glory into this world and he blesses it. He adds to the joy. With Jesus, everything is better. Including this wedding banquet. Because he brings a better wine 
to this wedding banquet. Let's go back for a moment to the point about partying like the world. On a certain level, it seems a little strange that Jesus would use a wedding banquet for the first place to display his glory. Because you've probably been at many wedding banquets. I have been to many. And even ones where there are good Christian families, even those ones can descend into sort of revelry, partying like the world does, if not just being a Christless affair. The name of Christ never comes up at some wedding banquets. And so realize what makes this wedding banquet really good is that Jesus Christ is there. That's what makes a wedding banquet really good. But the point is that rejoicing and alcohol can be a nasty combination, especially for those who lack joy in their life. I've heard that among some of the young people in our churches around the Fraser Valley, there are these large parties that go on. Wild parties where I can only imagine the alcohol flows freely. Well, the alcohol was flowing freely at this wedding banquet. The alcohol is flowing freely at these other parties. And I ask you, are these people there affirming life? Are they celebrating God? They're not. They're exploiting, distorting, destroying life. That's the way the world parties. Wine-induced joy in that situation is not meant to, is not meant to increase joy. It's meant to crowd out life-induced emptiness, despair. That's why in Jesus' miracle, he's not merely infusing a little more party into the banquet, but he's giving us a sign. It's meant to show, to, to lead to, to support rejoicing in him. Not crowding out life's despair, but rejoicing in the glory of God. It's to lead us in awe and praise of his glory. Jesus revealed his glory by changing the water into wine. How did he do that? Well, let's go to verse 6. There stood six stone water jars holding about 20 to 30 gallons of water. That's about the size of a, a laundry sink, to let you get a picture of it. Jesus tells the servants who had been forewarned by his mother Mary to fill them with water. And then with no further act or anything, Jesus had them draw the water from those stone jars and give it to the master of the banquet, who was surprised at the quality and the timing of the wine. And in that way, Jesus revealed his glory. He showed his glory, first of all, in the very act of changing the wine. He took something that wasn't much, And he transformed it into something beautiful and useful. That's what Jesus does. That's what the glory of Jesus does. He does it with the loaves and the fish when he feeds the 5,000. He does it with with Lazarus. Lazarus, He's dead and he makes him alive. 
He does it with his disciples, these ragtag bunch of fishermen, as he makes them into fishers of men. And he does it with us as well. Jesus displays his glory and his power in his ability to make anything or anyone useful, beautiful and life-enriching, joy-inducing. Brothers and sisters, as the Lord Jesus reveals his glory to you through his word and by his Holy Spirit, that's what he's doing to you. He's taking someone who wasn't much in themselves and he's making you useful. He's making you beautiful and he's making you add to the joy of this world. Jesus makes you better. And he does it through infusing you with His glory, by showing you His glory, that you lift up your eyes from this world which is so full of of sin and brokenness, lifting it up to Him in heaven, seeing His glory, and then being transformed because you see God. You see what it's all about. You can worship Him. You can find yourself in Him. being remade in His image. The more we gaze upon the glory of Jesus Christ, the more we grow in Him, the more we reflect His beauty, His life, His worth, the more we are filled with joy. Jesus shows His glory in that simple act of changing the water into wine. He also shows His glory through the miracle. That is, there's a message in this miracle. There's a message in the water changed to wine. That's that Jesus makes things a lot better. First of all, John highlights the quantity of the wine. He takes six stone jars filled with water to the brim and turns them into wine. Now, six laundry tubs full of wine, that's a lot of wine. That's at least 750 bottles of wine. That's at least as much as the bridegroom now has at his wedding banquet. And since this would have been closer to the the end of the feast, because the wine had already run out, this bridegroom has more than enough. He has way more wine than he needs. That's the way it is with the glory of Jesus Christ. He gives you way more than you need. His beauty and majesty and power is more than enough in every situation. It makes life a lot better. And second, John highlights the quality of this wine. The servants bring it to the master of the banquet to give a taste test. And he comments that this wine is better than the the stuff served at first. Verse 10, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you've saved the best till now. Now, The practice of those days makes sense. Uh, The translation here perhaps gives the impression that everyone here is having too much to drink, but it's probably more the case that after a few days, after having wine and rich food, your tastes aren't as aren't as sharp as they are at the beginning. 
And so you can get away with that cheaper wine as the, as the banquet goes on. But still, even after all these days of banqueting, this master of the banquet tastes the wine and he can taste that it's better. It's a lot better than the other stuff. This is very good. And that's the way it is with Jesus Christ as the Messiah. As he brings in his new kingdom, his new administration, it's a dramatic move forward. It's far better than what it was before. And that brings us to our last point. Jesus, the glory of Jesus Christ brings a better time. The Lord Jesus, as the new and the great Messiah, brings time of joy and rejoicing in Him through His glory. That's what's prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31 and elsewhere in the Old Testament. When the Messiah brings salvation for God's people, then in verse 12, they will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the oil the young of the flocks and herds, they will be like a well-watered garden. They will sorrow no more. His rule is one that is marked by joy, characterized by, by deep and abounding, overflowing joy. The glory of Jesus Christ shines a, a beam of light into a world suffering under darkness. You know how it is when it's been cloudy for a couple of days. And you feel that. But then that that beam of light that comes through and the clouds begin to part. It comes through and it it shines down. And it, it brings joy. It brings perspective. It makes you look up and realize, yes, it's not just clouds. There's light. That's what the glory of Jesus does to this world. He shines His light into a world suffering under darkness. With this miracle, Jesus displays life under Him, under His reign, under a new and a better King. The Israelites of the Old Testament lived under the regime of the the ceremonial washing. The constantly trying to deal with sin, to, to, to wash before you eat because otherwise you'd be unclean. Jesus moves beyond that. He brings a regime of of not cleansing from sin that's done in Him. He brings the joy and celebration that comes after. He brings the fine wine for the purpose of rejoicing. Jesus begins here to display His glory. And the subsequent displays of His glory are, like this miracle, all about the same thing. They're about the eradication of sin and the joy and celebration that come in forgiveness through Him. They all point to His triumph over sin, the devil, and the powers of darkness. When He walks on the water, when He heals the sick, when He casts out the demons, what is He doing? He's showing us that He is more powerful than sin, and He will eradicate it. And that's why there is darkness in this world. And that's why there is sorrow. It's because of sin. 
It's because of the power of Satan. It's not always a direct result. There is sorrow that comes from sin. That for the godly leads to repentance. There's also sorrow when you see sin abounding in this world. You experience it in the lives of your family members or when you consider what goes on in our world, the the terrible crime of abortion, the killing of babies. It happens every day, countless times, every day in our country. There's sorrow when the brokenness of the world touches your life, the sickness of your mother, the miscarriage of your wife or your sister or your friend, mental illness of your child. That's why Jesus Christ displays His glory. That's why He came and displayed His glory most dramatically, powerfully, and finally in His death on the cross. Because on the cross, He defeated sin and Satan. And through the cross, we rejoice. This, in fact, if we go back, is what he's getting to in verse 4. That kind of cryptic statement where he says, Dear woman, why do you involve me? And then he says, My time has not yet come. But then he goes ahead and changes the water into wine. What's going on here? Well, the word there for time is actually hour. My hour has not yet come. And all throughout the book of John, every time Jesus uses that word hour, he's pointing to his death. He's saying the time of my death has not yet come. The time, the time when I will most show my glory has not yet come. Because that's where His glory is on full display. On the cross of Calvary. When He died for the forgiveness of sins. When He died in triumph over evil and sin. Do you understand what that means? That Christ's glory is not only on display in the times of joy and celebration and mirth, but His glory is most on display in the most reprehensible act ever done in this world. When the only innocent man ever to live died on the cross. The glory of the Lord shines even in the most Difficult and hard to understand situations. It's often not in the times of rejoicing and celebration that you really see the glory of the Lord. It's often in times of difficulty. It's often when life is hard, when the brokenness of the world is creeping in on you, when it's affecting you. When you are sorrowful, when it's difficult, when you can't see past the clouds, that's when the glory of the Lord shines through the most clearly. 
Even an abortion. That terrible crime. Christ shows His glory. He shows His glory through the servants that His servants who love and care enough to help. To help women in pregnancies. To adopt children. He displays His glory to us as we pray and we see results. We see individuals being helped. The Word of God teaches us to see the glory of Jesus Christ even when it seems like the bad crowds out the good. Because He's a God who saves. God who saves sinners. Jesus shows His glory in the good times and the bad times. And He will show His glory completely in the best time. Jesus teaches us here in this miracle that the best wine is saved for last. And there's a truth that's cloaked in the Master's comments there. As much as the glory of the Lord, as He shines through His Word by the power of His Spirit, infuses joy into our lives now, real joy, deep joy, overflowing joy, the best joy is going to come later. When the glory of Jesus Christ on the last day is fully revealed. That's going to be a time of joy. That's going to be a party. See the powerful work of Jesus in His life, in His signs, in His triumphant work on the cross, in the ongoing work in your life, in our church, in our world. And be filled with joy. Look to the glory of Jesus Christ. Lift up your eyes. Look to Him. Gaze upon His beauty. Consider what He's done. Meditate on His works and His wonder. Because the glory of Jesus Christ makes everything better. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.